Are you recording now? Recording. <laughs> this is gonna sound weird. Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. Speak. Speak. Woof. Like you were like talking to me like I was a dog. Speak. Woof. Speak. I was more thinking of in the musical rent where they they're like a voicemail box goes speak i hate that musical (laughs) i'm also not a huge i'm not a huge fan of it um but broadway's really been on the brain for me the past week or so because there is drama in the broadway community because beanie feldstein is being replaced by leah michelle in the revival of funny girl on broadway Ah, okay. Leah Michelle, she's the one that played the girl in Glee who's obsessed with Barbara Streisand. And, like, her yes. dream role on Glee was, like, to be in Funny Girl, correct? Correct. Mm. So it seems, like, on brand, but then I, I'm pretty sure that Leah Michelle is, like, not a great human mm. being. Hmm. And, you know, Beanie Films. Feldstein, she, uh, you know, she's actually a Jewish actress. She kind of, she's funny yeah. in her own regard. Seems so. like a little bit of a stunt to get maybe the people who like Glee but aren't necessarily Broadway people to be like, look who's playing, you know, in this and her character on the show, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they're trying to bring mm-hmm. Glee back, back into popularity. Maybe it's still popular. Pl- among the, the youths. I think at this point you people rewatch it because we're like, how the fuck did we get away with this? Yeah. Back in 2008. I, I watched it in college like freshman year. So I was a little bit behind the times. Have not rewatched it. So I'm not really a, a rewatcher gal. I am for certain things. Like Pride and Prejudice. I can rewatch that. The one with Kira Knightley. I watch it all the time it's just i've it's never nice. watched it maybe i should i started watching persuasion on netflix which is an adaptation of one of what is it jane austen jane Eyre, jane austen it's jane austen uh, yes yes uh, it's an adaptation of her book people are talking shit um i never read the book but also i'm like uh, i don't care it's a it was a haven't finished it but it's just a movie a light-hearted little movie Mm -hmm. it's all these english heads who are like this is like what do you really expect come on now yeah um but you know but but, uh this isn't a podcast about jane austen (laughs) or you know anything else that we've talked about the past three minutes it's actually (laughs) a podcast called this is gonna sound weird and each week we cover a different talk about all things true crime, paranormal, and everything in between. Taylor, what's our theme for this week? 1980s crimes. Dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. So there was a lot to choose from because pretty much if yeah. uh, you wanted to commit a crime in the 80s, you could do it. And you probably were going to oh, yep. get away with it. Yep. Yep, I have a little bit of that in mind. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of famous I don't know. incidents. There was the Night Stalker. 
Mm-hmm. Richard Ramirez. So we have a lot of options this week. I mean, we have a lot of options every week, but. Yeah, which oddly enough, I mean, obviously the 70s go into the 80s, blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, when I looked it up, it was like all of the serial killers that you think of, a lot of them came up. And I was like, for some reason, I just picture them as like earlier, like early 70s. Like, I don't know why I didn't picture it like in the 80s. I pictured it just like straight up like late 60s, early 70s. I was actually surprised um, yeah. that some of them. And I feel like some of it, they were at, probably active in the 70s, but maybe didn't get caught until the 80s. So maybe that's why yeah. they get the title of the 80s. Yeah, that's true. But it was surprising. You know, we based this episode kind of off of my a little new haircut. And I would like to say there's this, it's not a new song. It's an old Miranda Lambert song, uh, Geraldine. Oh, yeah. And it's a good song. It. I currently just feel like I am Geraldine. With this hair, with the vibe, you know, the trailer park pretty, that's how I'm feeling. I went out the other night and I told Brandon, I said, that's just my vibe now. I'm trailer park pretty. <laughs> that's all it is. He's like, ma'am, so. we live in an actual home, not a double wide. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'd take a double wide right now, but guess what? Can't freaking afford one. Everything's so expensive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't afford to live, can't afford to die. So I guess I'll just hang around. But uh I go first. And my story's actually a little long. All right. Not not like unusually long, but longer than some other ones. Yeah. So I will go ahead and hop. Yeah, hop go ahead it. and monopolize the time. Okay, I will. <laughs> so I am doing my story on Something that I'd actually never heard of, and I was surprised. So, I'm doing mine on the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Have you ever heard of that? It's possible. Um, it, I, and I don't know if it's just because when I looked up 80s crimes, it came up in my search, or if I've yeah. actually heard of it. So, just why don't you go ahead and I'll tell you at a later time. Okay. So, these are my sources. Uh, the Unsolved Mysteries wiki page, uh, the Connecticut River Valley Killer, Wikipedia.com, Oxygen.com, eight of the most lethal serial killers of the 80s by Gina Tron, and the Murder Squad podcast. Uh, now, I tried to look up more podcast episodes. Like, I kind of went to my Google or, yeah, like my Apple podcast and just looked it up to see, like, surely a podcast that I listen to, because I listen to a lot of true crime, has covered it, and it was hard to find. Like, any podcast that I listen to or a lot at all that have covered it. So, I'll add myself to the list. <laughs> I'm going to source myself. <laughs> so, here we go. In the mid-1980s, a serial killer was stalking the areas of New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. The killer is believed to have at least killed seven women in the Connecticut River Valley area, which spans these states, and the killer has never been identified or caught and is just known as the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Wow, way to spoil it. Spoil yeah, the I just ending. I wanted to tell you up top. I want to tell you up top. Now, this story is going to start out with just like a list 
of women being murdered in the places they were found. And I usually feel like I don't go through all of that. And it's not like like gruesome or anything. But every source and everything I like listened to, it laid them all out. Because it kind of is important. I mean, obviously important is what happened. But you know what I mean. Because they don't know who this is. So there's no like background on the person. Blah, blah, blah. So this is what happened. So on October 24, 1978, a 27-year-old woman named Kathy Milliken was taking photos of birds at the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve in New London, New Hampshire. She was seen by some people at the preserve, but she was reported missing the next day by her co-workers when she didn't show up for work. That next day, her body was found and she had 29 stab wounds and her body was found just a few yards from where she was last seen. So, not much was known about her or the murder. It said she was married, but her husband or partner wasn't the one that um, reported her missing. It was her co-workers. And the police just said that, you know, they didn't think that it was a robbery or anything. And that's really all they had. So, just a few years later, on July 25th, 1981, a 37-year-old woman named Mary Elizabeth Critchley, who was a student from the University of Vermont, disappeared near Interstate 91, and she was at the border between Massachusetts and Vermont. She was hitchhiking and trying to get to Waterbury, Vermont, but on August 9th, her body was found in a wooded area off of Unity Stage Road in Unity, New Hampshire, but by the time her body was found, um, it was most likely too much in decay, and so the medical examiner could not determine her cause of death. But we'll come back to to her a little bit later. So, again, a few years later, on May 30th, 1984, a 17-year-old girl named Bernice Coutremanche was seen last by her boyfriend's mother. She was said to have been going to visit her boyfriend that day in Newport, Connecticut, and she was going to get there by hitchhiking along New Hampshire Route 12. But she did not make it to her boyfriend's, and she was reported missing. Then she was found, though, about two years after her disappearance. In April of 1986, her remains were found by a fisherman, and the medical examiner luckily was able to determine the cause of death, which were knife wounds to the neck, as well as a head injury. Then, the same year that Bernice went missing, which was the uh, girl I just mentioned, a one source said 26, one source said 27, and the year is 1984, if you forgot. So, a 26 or 27-year-old woman named Ellen Fried, or Freed, uh, she was a supervising nurse at Valley Regional Hospital in Claremont, New Hampshire. She stopped at a payphone fairly late at night, and she was calling her sister on the phone, and they talked for about an hour on the phone. And let me just say, I hate talking on the phone. Talking on the phone for an hour now is torturous. I could not imagine talking on the phone for an hour in a payphone booth. No. I would just die. Uh, typically, if I'm going to talk to someone on the phone, uh, it would be like, you know, I'm in my kitchen and I'm cooking or something. You know, it, yeah. it wouldn't be, you know, any sort of situation where I'm just standing stagnant. I get too, yeah. I need something it, to do with my hands. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't know what they was talking about. But 
while she was talking to her sister, she all of a sudden saw a strange car that I think was like in the parking lot and it was driving back and forth and she stepped away from the phone for a second just to like, you know, make sure her car would start like when she, you know, needed to leave. Um, and so she left the phone, walked back to the phone. She talked to her sister for a few more minutes and then she finished the call. Mm-hmm. But the next day she did not go into work. And her car was found abandoned on Jarvis Road, which was a few miles away from where she had used the payphone. Then, in September of 1985, her remains were found. They were found in a wooded area near the Sugar River in Kellyville. And when her body was examined, there was evidence of multiple stab wounds as well as a probable sexual assault. So, at this point, there have been four murders within a fairly small area. And pretty much all of them have been stabbed multiple times, some of them sexually assaulted, and the only one that they don't know the cause of death was Mary Elizabeth Critchley. So, but, like I said, I think she's included and others think she was included because of this next thing, even though they couldn't determine her cause of death. So, like, right now, all these women are coming up, a lot of them... Like, on the highway or near the highway. You know, they were last seen maybe near the highway, on the highway, or almost at, like, a gas station. So, now we're at July 10th, 1985. A 27-year-old single mother named Eva Morse was seen hitchhiking near the border of Claremont in Charlestown, New Hampshire, on Route 12. And I'm pretty sure, I can't remember what her name was, but another person was hitchhiking on Route 12. Um, that was murdered. And so this was the last time she was seen. And like the others, she was reported missing. In 1986, her remains were found by loggers and her remains were actually found only about 500 feet away from where Mary Elizabeth Critchley's remains were found five years earlier in 1981. Yeah. And Eva, the, um, lady who just went missing, um, and was found, her, uh, death was from stab wounds. So that's why I think, you know, what are the odds that their bodies are going to be found that close together and have like nothing to do with each other in this like time frame? I don't know. And for, well, this is kind of confusing. I'll, I'll get to it later. Okay. So now For us, at this point, we, you know, can clearly think, you know, these murders seem related. They seem linked somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's not often that people are going out murdering women who are, you know, hitchhiking and murdering in these specific ways. Um, But the police departments weren't really linking the cases. And I listened to, you know, some podcasts. I mean, it was in the 80s and so... And it was in different states, even though they're all close to each other, the departments may not be talking to one another. And so it may not have been clear at the time whether they were linked or not. But to me, in my non-expert opinion, they seem linked. Yeah, because that's kind of touched on in the Ted Bundy case where different departments weren't communicating. And so when he was killing across Mm -hmm. state lines... They, like, no one knew that there was a serial killer. But yeah. They thought they were all unrelated crimes. Whereas now, if something happens, they kind of, like, put a widespread thing out to other departments. Yeah. Yeah. So, on April 15th, 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore 
was at her home in Saxton's River, Vermont, which was a short distance from I-95. So her home was near like the highway or the interstate and she was doing some yard work. So she was in her own yard. So that night, her husband returned home and he found a horrible scene. His wife had been killed and she had multiple stab wounds. And the scene suggested that there had been an intense struggle between Linda and her killer. Now, witnesses actually reported to have seen a man near Linda's home the day of the murder. Mm -hmm. The witnesses said that the man was probably between the ages of 20 and 25, slightly stocky, dark-haired, clean-shaven, with a somewhat round face, wearing dark-rimmed glasses, and a blue knapsack. And so, based on this information, about a year later, there was a um, composite sketch released of this man. But there's going to be another composite sketch, I think, that comes out that may be more accurate. But so, somebody saw something weird. And this was weird because she was murdered, like, in her own, like, yard. Yeah. But still near the highway. So, there's something up with the highways. Mm -hmm. So... Now, it's January 10th, 1987, a 38-year-old nurse named Barbara Agnew was returning from a ski outing with some friends in Stratton, Vermont. And so this night, it was a pretty heavy snowstorm, and a snowplow driver happened to see a green BMW at a northbound I-91, so the same interstate that was near the other lady's home. Uh, So a northbound I-91 rest stop in Hartford, Vermont. So, the driver decided to check out the car. Um, I don't know why. Probably because it was snowing, like, really hard. And he maybe wanted to see if, like, the person was okay or needed help. Yeah. Because um, I don't know if a BMW is really a snow vehicle. <laughs> I would. Nah. Well, maybe it's an SUV, mm. but. Yeah. I, D- does BMW even have SUVs? I don't even know. I don't care. I don't think so. Well, I think they do. But I don't think it's, like, you know, like, what you think with, like, four-wheel Maybe drive. not in the 80s. No. I'm thinking just strictly like a, like a little, you know, sedan. Uh-huh. A convertible. I'm thinking a little convertible. Absolutely. Um, but, so, the snowplow driver checked out the car. He saw that the door was cracked open and there was blood on the steering wheel. And the car was, in fact, Barbara's car, but she was not in the car. Her body was found over two months later near an apple tree. That was very random. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's not, it didn't say apple tree or it just said apple just tree. one singular in apple Heartland. tree. Yeah. Yes. Maybe Johnny Appleseed himself probably planted it. Um, but this apple tree was in Heartland, Vermont. And she had been stabbed to death and was found just 10 miles from her home. And one source mentioned, they were like, you know, it was a heavy snowstorm that night. They were like... We still can't figure out why she stopped at that rest stop. And I'm like, well, maybe it was snowstorming and she was in a BMW. Right? Like, they they were like, that's weird. I was like, that's not weird. Like, what, you know, what if she, I would not be, even in a four-wheel drive, if it's snowing that bad, I'm probably going to pull over and wait it out. Yeah, or, like, you just think about, like, if it's, like, actively snowing, it might be where it's hard to see it's building up on the windshield, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to wait for it to pass, and then I'll get back out there. Yeah, so that detail, I was just like, well, that's just dumb. But you know what? Who am I? I'm not an investigator. So, in 1987, the authorities thought that the murders had ended, because nobody else had turned up, I guess. But... 
On August 6, 1988, a a woman named Jane Borowski was attacked. She was seven months pregnant and was returning home. Yeah, was returning home from a county fair in Keene, New Hampshire that night. She stopped at a convenience store to buy a soda from a vending machine. And when she returned to her car, she saw a Jeep Wagoneer parked next to her. She got in her car and she saw the driver of the Wagoneer walking toward her uh, in her rearview mirror. And so her window was rolled down and the man approached her open window and asked if the payphone was working. And before she could answer, he grabbed her and pulled her out of the car. So, yeah, she struggled and the man, this is the very odd part. He accused her of beating up his girlfriend and then asked her if she had Massachusetts license plates on her car. And she said no, she had New Hampshire license plates, but... This didn't matter because he continued to attack her and the man ended up stabbing her 27 times before he drove away, leaving her to die. Now, amazingly, Jane was able to get back into her car and drive toward a friend's house for help. Now, when she got close to the friend's house, though, so like this man in the Jeep Wagoneer like hightailed it out of there, obviously... And when she was getting close to the friend's house, she noticed that there was obviously a car driving in front of her, and the car was her attacker, was in the car in front of her. But she made it to her friend's house immediately, and they started helping her, and apparently, I guess, you know, I don't know how everything went down, but she, you know, she got into the house, obviously her friends are helping, called 911, all that, and I guess she probably was like, The guy who attacked me was literally driving in front of me on the way here. Like, what the heck? And her friends maybe, like, looked out the window because apparently the attacker took a U-turn after seeing her pull into the house. And he, like, drove past the house real slow. And then, apparently, then he just sped away. So, that, uh, I don't know about that. Sounds like something you could get away with in the 80s but couldn't get away with now. Hell no. And so this part is interesting. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't catch him because Jane was taken to the hospital. It was determined that her attack had severed her jugular vein. She had two collapsed lung, lungs. A lenny... <laughs> I was trying to say a kidney laceration, but I about said a lenny caceration. A lenny caceration. Very, a kidney very laceration. Uh, and severed tendons in her knees and thumb. Fortunately, though, both Jane and her baby survived. Wow. The baby did have some complications and would later be diagnosed with mild cerebral palsy, but they both survived, which is a miracle. Uh, if I had 27 stab wounds, I probably would not be a bad enough bitch to live. No. No. I'd like to try. But I can't, yeah, I can't guarantee anything. I get, I get too lightheaded on a normal day. Like if I don't eat enough, I get, I just, I don't eat enough in one day. I'm going to get lightheaded. If I get stabbed 27 times, I'm going to be lightheaded. Oh yeah. I probably would just die from being too scared. (laughs) Just die immediately. I would die because I don't handle stress well and I wouldn't be able to drive calmly to my friend's house. I would drive erratically. Hell no. At least now we have cell phones, so uh, we can call the, po- the police. Mm-hmm. But uh, because Jane survived, she was able to provide the authorities with a description of her attacker. And they used this description to create a composite sketch. 
And she was also able to provide the first three characters of the license plate. So, a Jeep Wagoneer with these three characters at the beginning of the license plate. And this is what he looks like. Like, you would think that you'll be able to find somebody with that. Because that's some good information. Okay? Um, and she was able to get the license plate numbers because she was literally following his car trying to get to her friend's house for help. So, following Jane's attack, the killings and the attacks really did come to a stop. But there were no leads as to who the killer could be. Mm. And the case pretty much went cold. The authorities had basically no witnesses and very little, if any, physical evidence. Now, there were no leads, but there was a profile created for the murderer by criminal psychologist John Philpin. And it stated the following about the killer. So, they said he made calculated attacks, paid special attention to detail, meaning that he may be some sort of collector. It's thought that he would have outbursts of rage, and his most important relationship was likely with his mother, and his father was likely abusive or not around. His violence may have been used to recreate a previous experience, and it's thought that he would have a history of voyeurism and spend a lot of time driving around in his car. Now, one of the sources, the Unsolved Mysteries, went really in-depth into the psychological or, like, profile but I was listening to The Murder Squad, and um, Paul Holes is on that show, and he used to be an investigator. And he was talking about how, honestly, profiles can be kind of useful, but he basically kind of said they were just kind of bullcrap. So I didn't go too far into it. I just gave the basic, because it can be useful, but, like, he said a lot of it's just opinion, and it a lot of times it don't help that much. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, he probably had dad issues, don't we all? But how am I supposed to? Yeah, how am I like supposed every to, other serial killer. How am I supposed to know that? Like, be like, oh, yeah. I'm gonna go to every person I know that owns this specific type of car, and I'm gonna ask them how their relationship is with their father. <laughs> so, how's your relationship with your dad? Do you have sudden outbursts of rage? <laughs> um, yeah. Do you like to drive around in your car a lot? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There was even something in the one page about how, like, the that psychologist, like, took Jane, the one that survived, and tried to do a hypnosis on her to figure out. I don't know. It was, it was a lot. Mm-hmm. But there are some suspects over the years, and so I'm going to tell you about a few of them. So, one of them was Delbert Tallman. He was suspected of the murder because of another murder that took place in 1984. Um, a 16-year-old girl named Heidi Martin had gone for a jog in Heartland, Vermont on Martinsville Road. And the following day, her body was found in a swampy area behind Heartland Elementary School. When she was found, she had been raped and stabbed. Delbert Tallman, who was 21 at the time, confessed to this crime. And he was tried, but like so many, he recanted his confession and was eventually acquitted. Mm. Heidi's body and the body of Barbara Agnew, who was another one of the victims, were actually discovered only about a mile from each other, and they were both killed from stabbing, which was, you know, the M.O. of the serial killer or the killer of the other women. And so Tallman was obviously suspected because he had confessed to Heidi's murder, even though he later recanted. And he also lived in the area. He had lived in Bellows Falls, Springfield, and Windsor, Vermont, as well as Claremont, New Hampshire, which was pretty much the epicenter of 
all of these killings. But he was never connected to the murders um, with any real evidence. And in 1996, he actually went to prison uh, for two counts of lewd and lascivious conduct with a child. And then he ended up being released from prison. But in 2010, he ended up having to go back again because he failed to comply with sex offender registration requirements in Florida. So, basically, he was never caught for anything other than the lewd and lascivious conduct. But given the circumstances of Heidi's murder, some consider her death as unsolved. Um, They actually consider her as part of the victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer. Um, And, you know, maybe it's possible that Tallman was the killer, but there's currently no evidence that to connect him to the murders. So... Now, the next one is an interesting one. It's basically a deathbed confession. So, another man who was a potential suspect for at least one of the killings is a man named Gary Westover. In October 1997, 46-year-old Gary Westover, who lived in Grafton, uh, New Hampshire, stated that he had a confession. And he was going to tell the confession to the retired Grafton County Sheriff's Deputy, Howard Menon. I think it's Menon, not Minion. No, uh, it's he minion. told Menon, it's Minion. He's a small it's the yellow man. <laughs> well, he told Minion uh, that in 1987, three friends had picked him up, and him is Gary, uh, for a night of partying. And I don't know if this was necessarily related to the case or not, but this was mentioned in the sources. So Gary was a paraplegic and he required a wheelchair. So he said he remembers his friends loading him up in the car, loading his wheelchair up. And they set out for Vermont. And so when they got to Vermont, they found a woman. And this woman was Barbara Agnew. And they abducted her and murdered her. And Westover told Menon the names of the three friends that had gone along with him. But Menon, it seems like Menon told the authorities, because he was a retired sheriff's deputy. So he told the authorities. And he said that it seemed like they were not interested in his information. And Westover ended up dying just a year after this confession. Not even a year. He died in 1998. And Menon died in the early 2000s. And so, like, this could maybe explain Barbara Agnew's murder, but it doesn't explain any of the other ones. Mm -hmm. So, now, the last suspect I'll mention. This one I actually found last minute. I found it in the Unsolved Mysteries thing. And... Anyways, the person was apparently featured in the Unsolved Mysteries, but not by name. They were not identified by name. So this is kind of what it is. So this person's son had come forward and suspected that his father was involved in these murders. So his mother, which had been the murderer's wife, told the son that she saw a composite of Jane's attacker. So she saw the composite made after Jane was attacked, and she thought it was her husband. And she told her son that one night... Her husband had come home covered in blood and she was scared to death and she she didn't even ask him what happened. Instead, she just helped him burn his bloody clothes and then the next day she saw on the news that a woman had been murdered within a mile of a bar that he frequented. And so, this man was apparently, like his son said he was violent and dangerous and he had issues with the women in his life. He had rage issues and, quote, go completely out of control. In one incident, he apparently threw his wife out of a second-story window. 
and was holding her by her hair. And she also told her son that the husband was a sexual deviant. And the family did live in Massachusetts, um, in a Massachusetts farm for several years. And it's said that this man would violently butcher his pigs and his chickens. And, and he owned a Jeep Wagoneer. And they had a photograph of this man and they showed it to Jane, the woman who survived her attack. And she said that the quote, hairs on the back of her neck stood up in fear. She said she was certain that it was her attacker. But this man died in 2008 without ever being investigated. Damn it. And it's not known if police actually consider him a suspect in the case. So that one seems the most compelling other than the fact that he is nameless. Yep. It's a um, little hard but, to convict if you don't know who he actually is. Uh, yeah. Um, and so even to this day, they don't know who this killer was. Some authorities say that these killings were not even at all connected. Um, but... What we do know, apparently, uh, the, the authorities think that if it all was the work of one man, that he likely moved to another part of the country, maybe because uh, Jane survived her attack, or that he had been incarcerated for some other crime, and that's why the killing stopped, you know, all of a sudden. And, you know, if you lived back in this time in any of these areas, or your grandma did, I'm going to give you just... A description of what they think he most likely looked like in case in case you know anything. So the suspect apparently is around 5'7 to 5'8, weighs bet- weighed between 150 and 160 pounds. And this was all in 1990, like one, whenever they gave this information. Uh, he had blonde hair. He was clean shaven. He may have been driving a golden brown Jeep Wagoneer with the license plate including the number 662 likely in the front. Uh, and he was in his mid-30s to early 40s. And Jane described him as just a normal-looking dude. Mm. And so that's the Connecticut River Valley Killer that I had never heard of. Yep. I uh, don't think I've ever heard of it. But then the the killings just stopped. Mm-hmm. Just stopped. Interesting. Which kind of makes me think he probably went to prison for something else. Whoever it was. Yeah, I would think so. Because I feel like even if, like, he, like, went dark for a little bit, he probably would have eventually re-emerged. Yeah. Because he just wouldn't and be able I to stop. And I think they're connected. Like, some of the sources said that the authorities don't think they're connected, but I'm like, it just, they seem too similar. Like, they were connected via these highways. All the murders were in the same way. Like, I just think, I just think they're connected. And, you know, one of them maybe is an outlier, um, but I think, you know, there's at least seven of them. So I would say at least some of them have to be connected. Yeah, I would say majority of them are probably connected. And then there's maybe like one that like kind of got lumped into it, but maybe isn't connected. Yeah. But I, I find it unlikely that all of them are unconnected. That would be honestly even more scary because then you've got like at least seven people out there killing in this one small area. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, and just killing random people. I feel like people don't just yeah. normally kill random people; they kill someone that they have a no. they have beef with. Yeah. All right. A serial killer would kill randos, but you know. 
Not your average Joe. No. All right. You ready for my 80s crime? I am. All right. Going a little off book, like I said. I could have done it on one of the many, many serial killers of the 80s. But instead, I will be doing mine on John Lennon's assassination. Oh, wow. Mm Mm-hmm. That's something. Yep. So, and I think when we get a little bit further in, you'll understand why I found this fairly intriguing. Because me and you have talked about this before. Not specifically John Lennon, but this other part. Just just sit tight. Okay. So, I got most of my sources, or most of my information from Wikipedia, obviously. Several different pages. And history.com. So, let me okay. let me set the scene. December 8th, uh, 1980, magi- not magician, <laughs> musician. <laughs> <laughs> he was on the street okay. and he was pulling rabbits out of his hat. <laughs> no. No, that's why he got killed. He was so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> he just kept saying, pick a car, pick a car, pick a car. Oh. No. It was December 8th, 1980, and musician and former Beatles member John Lennon and his wife Yoko Ono arrived at their apartment building, which is the Dakota, located across from Central Park in New York City. The couple's limo dropped them off on 72nd Street, and as they walked towards the building's entrance, a man standing on the sidewalk drew a gun, aimed it at the center of John's back, and fired five hollow-point bullets. Bystanders recall the man calling out, Mr. Lennon, before firing, almost like he wanted him to turn around. Uh-huh. Jose Perdono, who was the doorman at the Dakota, shook the gun out of the man's hand, kicked it across the pavement, and shouted, Do you know what you just did? To which the man calmly replied, I just shot John Lennon. So he knew exactly what he did. He knew exactly what he had done. Despite being rushed to the hospital, John was pronounced dead soon after due to blood loss. After the shooting, John... Sorry. After shooting John, the man sat on the pavement and waited for police to arrive. And while he waited, he read one of his favorite books, which was The Catcher and the Rye. I knew it. Yep. We've talked about it. We'll get into it. I guess we all knew it, but... (laughs) (laughs) But you, you knew it, but you didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. So the man made no attempt to flee or resist arrest. He went pretty willingly. Now, you're probably wondering, who is this man? Well... Let's go back a bit. Mm -hmm. Mark David Chapman was born on May 10th, 1955 in Fort Worth, Texas. His father was a staff sergeant for the U.S. Air Force, and his mother was a nurse. Growing up, Chapman lived in fear of his father, who was physically abusive towards his mother. And growing up, Chapman was bullied and at age 14 began using drugs to cope with this. In 1971, he began became a born-again Presbyterian and began working at a summer camp counselor at the YMCA. He was very popular with children, and pretty much everyone who knew him or worked with him, specifically in child care, just thought he was an outstanding worker, you know, pretty cool guy. Mm-hmm. But Chapman began to read 
the catcher in their eye after it was recommended to him by a friend. This would inevitably change Chapman's whole life because the novel eventually took on a great personal significance for him as he wanted to emulate the novel's protagonist, who is Holden Caulfield. Mm-hmm. Now, after graduating from high school, Chapman moved for a time to Chicago and worked with Vietnamese refugees and he began attending an evangelical Presbyterian liberal arts college in Georgia. But he started to fall behind in his studies. He began to have suicidal thoughts and would end up dropping out of college and found work as a security guard. He moved to Hawaii in 1977, where he was admitted to the hospital after a failed suicide attempt. But he, he seemed to get his life fairly on track because he went on a six-week trip around the world because he was inspired by the book Around the World in 80 Days. And mm-hmm. in... Please. what He's real just like... Like, I just knew that was going to be the damn book. Mm-hmm. How basic can he get? Yep. It is pretty basic. But I also feel like he... <laughs> I also feel like he was one of the first people to do it. So he yeah, kind of like... he started it. He started the trend. He's, he's a yeah. trendsetter. But in June of 1979, Chapman married Gloria Abb, who he met while on his travels. But he began drinking heavily to cope with his depression and developed a series of obsessions. This included The Catcher in the Rye and music by, you guessed it, John Lennon. Mm-hmm. So, in September of 1980, he wrote a letter to a friend where he stated, I'm going nuts. Signed, The Catcher in the Rye. So, mm-hmm. he started to plan John Lennon's death three months prior to the murder. He was a longtime fan of Lennon and the Beatles, but had over time turned against Lennon specifically I think when the switch was in 1966 when Lennon was quoted as saying that the Beatles were quote more popular than Jesus according yeah so according to Gloria who was Chapman's wife he was angry that Lennon would preach love and peace but had you know millions of dollars So, he became obsessed with eliminating someone he believed fit the catcher in the rise description of a phony. Because I guess Holden Caulfield, who is the protagonist of Catcher in the Rye, really is all about, like, people are such hypocrites, they're such phonies, and that is what he believed John Lennon was. Okay. It was rumored that Chapman traveled to Woodstock, New York during one of his visits to the state of New York where he searched for Todd Rudgren, who was another target of his obsession. And Mm -hmm. Chapman had actually flown specifically to New York City to take the life of a celebrity. And he had debated between a few other celebrities, and this included Johnny Carson and Elizabeth Taylor, but he ultimately chose Lennon. 
The day of the murder, Chapman met Lennon outside of his apartment building earlier that day. Lennon headed was headed to the recording studio, uh, and he, you know, Chapman was just hanging outside, just like a regular fan. Mm-hmm. And Chapman said, quote, he was very kind to me, ironically, very kind and was very patient with me. The limousine was waiting and he took his time with me and got the pen going and he signed my album. He asked if I needed anything else and I said, no, no, sir. And he walked away. Very cordial and a decent man. Okay, okay. That should be enough to be like, hey, maybe I, sh- maybe I shouldn't do what I think I want to do. Yeah, let me reconsider, you know? Yeah, yeah. But no. He did not reconsider, because later that night, Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono, returned to the Dakota where Chapman shot and killed Lennon. The next day, Lennon was cremated and his ashes were later scattered in Central Park across from where he was killed. Chapman was convicted of murdering Lennon and was given a 20-year sentence to life imprisonment. Uh, But over the years, he has been denied parole several times actually um you know over 11 times but he just keeps going up for it but i don't think he'll ever you know get it just because he is so mentally ill just from different mental evaluations Mm -hmm. they found in court chapman pled guilty to murdering lennon saying that his guilty plea was quote the will of god he was charged with second degree murder And before his sentencing, he was given the opportunity to address the court, at which he read a passage from, you guessed it, The Catcher in the Rye. Oh, yes, of course. Of course. Um, What book would you read a passage from in a court? I think maybe Twilight. The Hunger Games. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. For sure. So, since he has gone through various hearings and over time, has been deemed unfit to be released, thank God, he currently remains in prison, which I'm assuming he will probably remain in prison, seeing as he's been there for, uh, it's probably like 40 years now. Yeah, don't make me do math. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Even if it's not, even if it's not forty years, do not correct us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. No. So John Lennon is now memorialized in the Strawberry Fields section of Central Park, which is right across mm-hmm. the street from the Dakota, which is where him and his wife and child lived, and his wife actually landscaped the area in honor of him. But I've seen it. I know what you're thinking. Sydney, you and Taylor have kind of hinted that other killers have connections to the catcher in the rye. What could this be? Well, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Some other instances where people have been reading the catcher in the rye and done some suspect stuff. So, John Hinckley Jr. tried to assassinate President Ronald Kennedy less than four months after John Lennon's murder. 
and police found a copy of The Catcher in the Rye amongst his personal belongings. And another one, and I, we've talked about this case actually um, when we did celebrity deaths. No, cele- mm-hmm. it was one of our earlier ones. Um, and Taylor covered Rebecca Schaefer's case. So Robert John Bardo, who killed Rebecca Schaefer, who was a young actress, um, and he killed her outside of her apartment uh, in the late 80s. When they searched him, he was carrying the catcher of their eye when he murdered her. So, you know, not great. Um, Really not great. There's a movie on this whole case with Jared Leto, and it's called, I want to say it's called Chapter 64 or something like that. I don't know. Jared Leto had to get a lot of weight gained uh, to play Mark Chapman. But yeah, that is the story of John Lennon's assassination and why you shouldn't read The Catcher in the Rye if you are not all mentally there. Uh, I'm interested in reading it just because I want to see what is it about the book that really clicks with these people and it's like, ah, you know what I need to do? Yeah. Kill somebody. You know, I have the book and I bought it for that exact purpose. I think I bought it while we were in undergrad. And I read, I don't, I don't know where it is, somewhere. I read like maybe half of it, not even, and then I didn't finish it. And I didn't finish it, not because I hated it, but it just wasn't like really keeping my attention all that much, but I still do want to read it. Um, The main character to me, and also to you, and most, I would say people, specifically probably women, He's not, he's not, you're not going to relate to him at all. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't think he's meant to be relatable based on how it's written. I don't think he's meant to be relatable. But I feel like the people who read the book and do feel like he's relatable, that is what happens. That is the issue. He, if you find him relatable, yeah, seek some help. You have a problem. I did not find him relatable. He kind of was a little just like, I don't know, like slimy and just kind of like douchey it was just not it was not the vibes uh, but now I kind of want to read it again it's not a very long book I'm actually working on finishing up a Stephen King book so maybe I'll give it a shot again maybe I'll just pick it up where I left off because the only thing I remember is he went to New York City and he was is in high school but he was trying to like go to a bar or something and I don't know something yeah well go ahead read it let us know if you have any homicidal thoughts, and I will quickly report you to the authorities. To the police. Yes, I will as well. But yeah, if y'all have read it, let us know. Like I said, I have it. It's not very long. Maybe I'll read it again. Probably not. I, I'm a real fan of reading half of a book. If a book does not absolutely grip my attention, I will read half of it and set it on the shelf and pick up something else. That's about what happens with almost every single book I read. Yep, I try to give a book between 20 and 50. 50 pages to really you know because sometimes you gotta lay a little bit of groundwork but anything more than that i'm like what are we doing wasting my damn time yeah but thank you for that that was interesting i appreciated it yeah it was unexpected 
Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that happened in the 80s. I didn't either. So, I mean, it was, right, no it was right there at the beginning of the 80s, but the 80s nonetheless. I also have no concept of time. So, what's our theme next week? Our Sydney? theme next week is... I've, I've forgotten it. No. She already forgot. I didn't. Yes, I did. Grounds for divorce. That's she what did. it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember it. I still have a few ge- good years left, baby. Yeah. So basically our theme, we were, we were trying to figure out a title. I said mischievous marriages. Sydney said grounds for divorce. We're still working on it. But basically it's people who marry someone who ends up being completely someone you didn't think they were. Mm-hmm. Or just maybe marry someone and they end up being a serial killer or a murderer. Or just, you know, they got tens of millions of dollars in debt or they're a scammer you know anything Mm -hmm. anything goes yeah could be they have a they have an entire life a whole family you don't know about we don't Uh know true you know hopefully i won't have to tell the story of my own marriage hopefully brandon won't you know pull something within the next week but you never know god uh that could be interesting that would be crazy you, Maybe I have a whole separate life. Maybe I live in a trailer park named Geraldine. And I'm out there stealing everybody's man on the weekends. Could be. Could be. I would hope that Brandon would have figured that out in, you know, the seven to eight years you've been together. <laughs> but, you know, men, but you know, men don't notice anything. He's not very observant. <laughs> but you hasn't even realized you got your hair cut. <laughs> nah, he he didn't realize that as soon as I walked in the door. Yeah. But, but yeah. Follow us on all of our shit. Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, TikTok. Um, and stay tuned for next week when we talk about, you know, cautionary tales of terrible relationships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Make Taylor yeah. reconsider this this new marriage. But until Too late, already doing it. Yep. Until until next week, please be careful who you marry. Um, do not read Catcher in the Rye, and no. and stay weird. Goodbye. Goodbye.